Welcome to the Theology Research News podcast. Theology Research News provides updates from KU Leuven's Faculty of Theology and Religious Studies to a worldwide academic audience. It features interviews with faculty members, discussions with visiting scholars, and updates about our publications, conferences, and other events. Please visit TRN at theologyresearchnews.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Nathan Betts, and today I'll be speaking with Dr. Hans Wiersma. Wiersma, who specializes in Lutheranism and Reformation history, is Associate Professor of Religion at Augsburg University in Minneapolis, USA. Recent work of his includes the second edition of James Kittleson's Luther the Reformer, The Story of the Man and His Career, published in 2016, as well as Reformation-oriented articles in the Oxford Research Encyclopedia of Religion and other similar works of reference. Wiersma is also co-author of several books on theology written for general audiences, uh, including Crazy Book, A Not-So-Stuffy Dictionary of Theological Terms, now in its second edition. Today we'll be talking with Wiersma about the new book he's working on here at KU Leuven, as well as his reflections on research, teaching, and trends within the study of Reformation and Counter-Reformation Studies. Hans Wiersma, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Nathan. I'm glad to be here. So... uh, you're here to write a book, um, and I wonder if you'd just uh, tell us a little bit about why Leuven, why at this time, and we'll talk about the book a little bit later, but you know, why here? There are a lot of places you could be doing this kind of work. Sure. Well, w- one of the reasons to come to Leuven is because um, I have some friends here uh, who do scholarship in the area that I'm interested in. Um, I've known of the school for quite some time, and it's import historically um, for for Reformation history, and um, was looking for an opportunity to get a year off of my teaching duties and uh, come and do some some research straight up. And when it became possible that I was going to get that leave of absence for study from uh, Augsburg University, uh, the first place I thought of coming was was Leuven. Mm. And the reason is <clears throat> because of uh, my uh, ongoing interest in uh, the the Dutch connection, let's say, or, or the importance of the Low Countries in the earliest years of the Reformation. Mm. So this is a natural place. In, in, in this is a natural place, you know. And I had, uh, as I mentioned, some some acquaintances already uh, who who uh, are connected with this place, and um, it's part of Flanders. So I could uh, exercise my Dutch. I grew up speaking Dutch, so that was part of the appeal, I suppose. Yeah, precisely. So. Uh, tell us a little bit about the book as you see it now, because I realize writing is, an, is a is yeah. a process. But. So the book is called uh, 1520, and it's in it's sort of that genre of of taking a look at a historical period through the events of a given year. So, you know, one big inspiration for me was David McCullough's 1776. Uh, McCullough kind of goes through the 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 history of the the um, Revolutionary War. The American the, Revolution. Uh, the American Revolution, um, uh, you know, through the lens of, of different characters and different events that happened in 1776. Uh, with 1520, I'm taking that more literally, in fact, and going month by month, um, sort of taking the events that happened um, originating in Wittenberg, but then um, sort of continuing here in Leuven, uh, and then uh, moving on to Rome and all the different players like Luther and Erasmus and uh, Johannes Eck from Ingolstadt and um, 
uh, Jakob Latomis from Leuven. It was a great cast of characters, and I always thought, you know, for at least three or four years, I <clears throat> excuse me, had this idea that there's a great story to be told uh, just through the lens of the the development of events and the different characters who drive those events mm -hmm. that sort of at the, in the middle of the year culminate in the papal bull, uh, Exerge Domine, mm -hmm. released against Luther, and then, and then that whole thing culminates in Luther's burning of the papal bull at the end of the year. Mm. So just from a dramatic standpoint, I thought <clears throat> this would be a great story to tell. Mm. Um, maybe not get as deeply into the theology or um, you know some of the other political concerns that drove it, but more in, in um, trying to describe the times and describe these really interesting characters. It's really a... You know, a twenty thousand meter view, just taking a look yep. at the landscape and telling a story of what was yep. happening in a given point. <clears throat> and I think, well, I was just going to just to add to that. Yeah, that's part of the problem is that there, there, the, the previous treatments, usually in Luther biographies, sometimes in Erasmus biographies of this particular year in the sixteenth century, are told through the lens of Luther or through the lens of Erasmus. Right, so you got one, you know person being described how, how he conducted himself in that year. This, I'm trying to do it from multiple points of view. Right. So you can see the year through Latomus's point, you know, eyes and through Erasmus's eyes and Pope, Pope Leo X's eyes. Right, right. Yeah. So we, I, I heard you give a presentation not long ago here in Leuven uh, to the research uh, church history um, research unit, and you mentioned that in a certain sense, 1520 has kind of been not not neglected, but maybe overshadowed. People have looked earlier, you know, yep. 1517, 1890. People have looked later, but there's something about 1520 which you think uh, might actually provide more of a, uh, perhaps more of a pivot in the Re yep. Reformation than has previously been acknowledged. I think the word pivot is a great word uh -huh. to use here. I think 1517 is not a pivot. 1517, you know, for all the hype it got in 2017, um, you know, that was really sort of an, Luther's unintentional um, spark of a, of, a, of a theological discussion, let's say, that turned into a, a fight. <clears throat> um, but really, even the 95 Theses are, are, are sort of a superficial uh, expression of really what Luther was thinking at the time. Mm. Um, so 1517, people describe it as a spark. I think that's probably a good word, but nothing, I think in 1517, you can say that's the start of what we now call the Reformation. And others will say 1521 when Luther had his, you know, dramatic stand at the Diet of Worms and that resulting in the Edict of Worms began the Reformation. That's probably a better pivot moment. But even before that pivot, I think the events of 1520, uh, sort of circumscribe a dramatic pivot from mm -hmm. <clears throat> away from what was kind of an internal theological academic argument mm -hmm. to um, a, a, a movement out of northern Germany that that threatened to divide Latin Christendom. Mm. And I think what happened through 1520 and especially at the end of 1520 kind of kind of sealed the fate and, and enabled what we now call the Reformation. Yeah, yeah. I've heard history described as being, you know, looked at it in one way, a process of 
uh, well, actually, a process and crisis. Process and crisis. So it certain, seems like, in a certain sense, 1520 provides a very, a very compact process which, which approached crisis, yeah. and maybe the Diet of Worms was the crisis, but the, the real pivoting was happening before that point. Yeah, so, yeah. Well, I would say, well, so the Diet of Worms, I think, properly viewed as sort of a second chance mm. that, that political events create for Luther, uh, Luther's prince and the new, um, the, the, the new um, emperor, Charles V, and the Pope and his representatives, I think there's, there's an opening to give Luther a second chance to recant or renounce. Mm -hmm. But the first chance was with the 1520 mm -hmm. and Sergei Dominator. Yeah. And I think after he burns that bull, he's not, he's not going back. But I, it just, I, I want to make the argument that 1520 has a more extended drama, uh, really a more interesting one than you find compacted in the, the events of the Dido Worms yeah, and afterwards. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> We're sitting here, uh, actually meters away from what's called Pope's College. Yes, we are. Here in yes. Leuven. <laughs> and I'm just curious about the role that Leuven plays as a place yeah. and as a locus of theological and political activity yeah. in this year, 1520. Yeah. Could you sketch for our listeners kind of how you see this place positioned yep. in this? When you see... Uh, 1520 described in Luther biographies it's mostly through the lens of his big treatises from the time so it's all as if you know Luther sat was sitting down writing these deep theological thoughts and putting them on paper and getting them printed but there's something else going on in 1520 and that is that th this this whole thing really starts as kind of an an academic debate <clears throat> uh, driven initially by Johannes Eck the professor mm -hmm. from Ingolstadt who goes to Leipzig and engages in the debate with Luther in the summer of 1519, but then continuing with other faculties um, uh, in, in Köln and then here in Leuven, and mm -hmm. especially here in Leuven, they really latched on to uh, what Luther had written and really took seriously what they understood to be their calling, and that is to respond as doctors of the church to what they found problematic in Luther's writing. Mm -hmm. So in November 1519, uh, after s some you know, uh, seminars, I suppose, looking at Luther's writings, uh, these guys, led by Latomus and uh, some others, um, uh, produce a statement, um, which they eventually get printed at the beginning of 1520, mm -hmm. uh, of 14 problematic articles uh, that they find in Luther's writings up until that point. Gets printed, uh, Eck gets a hold of it, and he brings that document down to Rome as he pushes forward with taking action against Luther. Mm -hmm. So it's these academics, you know, representing Europe's big universities mm -hmm. uh, who are responding to an ac another academic, Dr. Luther, mm -hmm. um, who sort of drive the theological wedge, let's say. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, it gets taken over by the political powers and leads to the political, mm -hmm. pol political consequences. Mm -hmm. But, <clears throat> you know, what Luther intended as an academic debate, even in 1517, really where his heart always was, really really kind of became that in 1519, but then got, then became quickly political as well. I see. I see. But the Leuven theologians, um, they're, they're, they do not get the credit they deserve mm. for their sustained opposition against Luther beginning in 1519 mm. and carrying on all the way to the year he died. Mm -hmm. So I, I want to kind of give Leuven yeah. its due in this book, yeah. you know. <laughs> Would it be safe to say, play, you know, sit doing... <laughs> 
armchair speculative history here that if the Leuven theologians had not taken Luther's work so seriously that history may have taken another course? Or is that putting, yeah. is that a little bit too blunt uh, you know, a way of thinking? Um, <laughs> the what ifs, uh, okay. when you ask a historian, they go, well, if you're going to open up that bag of worms. Yeah. Um, you know, there are any number of things, I suppose, that could have happened that would have driven it a different way. Um, but I think without the the seriousness with which the Leuven theologians took their calling to respond to Luther, um, uh, and maybe also Eck, if he uh, wasn't so determined to, to out Luther as a heretic, mm-hmm. um, it would have at least been delayed. Right. Uh, at least, and but maybe, and I think this is why your question is still a good one to ask. You know, Luther always understood that he was going to have his true day in court, and he hoped for that true day in court all the way to the end of the 1530s. And that day in court being a regularly called church council or a Lateran council, where all the theologians, including the Wittenberg theologians, would be able to gather and discuss and make some doctrinal pronouncements. That council came. It's called the Council of Trent, and mm-hmm. the Lutherans weren't invited. But what would have happened if Luther were invited and the other Wittenberg theologians were invited to the Council of Trent? Mm. That's, that's a good question because yeah. they hoped for it, beginning already in 1519, yeah. but they hoped for it for two decades and it just never, yeah. never transpired. Yeah. Yeah, it would have turned out much differently if they had their time in court with the council. Yeah. I wonder, Hans, how this work <laughs> grew out of past work because... You, you know, you have to be very involved in, in the theology and the history and of this time to really, uh, you know, to kind of articulate the problem that you've articulated and write this book. How did this even come about? The the idea for this book, you know, where does this fit within all of the yeah. work? I um, <clears throat> excuse me. The uh, the idea for the book really actually came from some buddies of mine who get together every summer to read and. And, and talk and write theology. And um, I had given a presentation at this little gathering of, uh, of Lutheran pastors about Luther's treatises from 1520. And instead of just talking about the content of the treatises, talked a little bit about the context in which they were born, which is really this highly politicized context of uh, 1520. And uh, they go, well, we've never heard that. And I go, well, this is, this is what I can tell you as a historian. And they go, you should write a book about 1520. So that was part of it. And then the other part was, um, you know, my dissertations in the early years of, of, uh, of Luther's teachings um, in the Low Countries and how they were received here. And my dissertation is on one of the very first uh, Wittenberg-educated um, uh, priests who then was sent to Antwerp to uh, to run the monastery there, and he mm-hmm. got in trouble for preaching Luther, and so you know, as a Low Countries descendant myself, I was always been interested in the earliest years of the Reformation and and how the Low Countries played a part. It's quite different mm-hmm. than what happened in Germany. So those two streams, I suppose, you know, my interest in 16th century Low Countries mm-hmm. history and um, this idea to describe. Luther's theological development in the context of the political events of mm-hmm. 1520 really is, is what comes together in this book. Yeah. And how would you situate your, you know, what you're doing now within Luther studies as they're currently unfolding or Reformation studies, counter-Reformation uh, yeah. studies? Um, 
is are you kind of are you surfing a wave, so to speak, here of interest? Uh, are you taking it in a new direction, or I'm just curious how how you how you fit this? I'm forward. trying to see. I'm trying to. That's a good question that I'm trying to figure out a good answer to. I don't know if I'm riding a wave. I just I think I saw an, a need, and that is that. Um, uh, 1520 is kind of a lacuna, at least from the point of view of Luther, you know, his, the history of Luther. You know, it's all, you know, what happened up until the Leipzig debate. Mm -hmm. And then when you read the history books, this, that, and the other thing, and then all of a sudden it's the diet of worms. And, you know, the, the biography that I did the second edition of, there's just a, a, a page and a half of uh, attention to the political events of 1520 and then a few more pages on the treatises. Right. Um, much more attention is given to the other years. Um, so I, if I'm writing any wave, it's, it's, it's the wave of, of early modern historians that are trying to fill in blanks. Mm. You know, where have historians not paid enough attention where they should have been paying more attention? And that's really, I think, one big thing I'm trying to do with 1520. There's mm. a lot of stuff that people even with a middle level knowledge of Luther history uh, or Lutheran history would not know mm -hmm. uh, took place mm -hmm. and would not appreciate um, when they look at 1520. Now that's interesting how scholarship often <clears throat> happens and on my own area of research which I won't go into now but there's a topic which is often treated by theologians in, in Revelation or the Apocalypse um, namely everyone talks about the millennium, but there's a there's a topic right next to it, and that's the New Jerusalem, and it's almost overshadowed because of the immensity of the idea of mm -hmm. the millennium, which is a perennial point of contention within the Christian Church uh, since the very very beginning. So it's interesting these points of emphasis within you know early modernity has kind of taken the spotlight off of something mm -hmm. which really deserves some attention on its own, but mm -hmm. it's maybe been hidden in that shadow. Um, I guess uh, I wanted to move the conversation a little bit more toward um, just what it's like as a scholar um, from the States working um, at an institution. Tell me, remind me, Augsburg University is a Lutheran institution? Or We're is it, historically is it Lutheran, um, but, but now just connected to, but uh, okay. straight up kind of liberal arts, sure. yeah, very I, diverse student body. I'm just wondering what it's like as a scholar from a, a North American context mm -hmm. and perhaps, you know, historically with a different religious emphasis, coming to, to Leuven, different continent, maybe different way of doing scholarship, certainly a different religious heritage. And I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about, you know, what that's like sure. and um, what if you have any reflections on that. You bet. Well, that, that was part of the appeal was because, you know, I've been, I mean, I'm a Lutheran pastor originally. Now I'm teaching at a Lutheran uh, affiliated school and um, you know being able to come to a school that's that's historically Catholic still is Catholic I mean you walk you, know, you walk out here and you go past the uh, bust of uh, Pope Adrian the sixth you yes, know yes. Um, as you walk into the Palace College you know um, Pope Adrian the sixth for more uh, you know from a Lutheran standpoint you know he's the uh, he's the guy who took over for the for the bad Pope Leo the tenth but you know, just to be here, I think, with you know, in in a, in a historically Catholic context, and having access to to the more Catholic resources, which I did not have access to in the mm -hmm. states, you know, for instance, DeFalk's um, 
history of the uh, Collegium Trilingue. You know, you can't get that in the States. Well, the Trilingual Lingue is what? Uh, and and know, the actual half, 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 half yeah, we had beers over at the, <laughs> at the College of the Trilingue, or where we used to be. Um, yeah, just being able to walk the streets, as I tell the beginning of the story, because the beginning of 1520, I said it in Leuven, um, is has just been great, mm -hmm. Creative, creatively even, mm -hmm. just, just you know, walking around and being in these buildings and seeing all the, the Catholic markers and the markers of the, of the school's <clears throat> history um, has, has been just an inspiration, mm -hmm. I think. And your interaction with professors here is, uh, I mean, do, do you know to a, a pronounced difference toward even approaching scholarship? Because I, I myself have, I've been in universities in three different sure. countries, and it's remarkable sometimes the assumptions of scholars in one country may be quite different from those of another. Yep. And if that has a, a creative uh, kind of whoa, looking through the other end, so well, to speak. Or. Absolutely, you know, and I think I think this you you were just mentioning this. We get stuck in our silos as scholars, and part one of those silos is just our our country. And you know, my silo is. Uh, American Lutheran historical studies and you just you, because you're not naturally connected with other scholars um, you, you miss things and so you come here and now all of a sudden you're having conversations with other scholars so you know I've I've had lunch with a, a few of the guys here and I won't name names but each one of them has said have you looked at this have you considered this or over that lunch um, you know giving their own take on a development that I had never heard before. Mm -hmm. Not only did I not consider that take myself, but I'd never heard anyone else articulate it. Um, uh, you know, just one example would be, um, you know, why Leuven? Why did the Leuven theologians, um, you know, why why did they take it upon themselves? Could have been Sorbonne, could have been, you know, even more Kiln, but it was Leuven who really took the lead into producing the key academic document that helped set the stage for for prosecuting the Lutheran mm -hmm. heresy. You know, so why Leuven? That's a question I never even thought to ask. But, mm -hmm. but there are scholars here who are already asking it and writing articles about it. Right. Yeah. Certainly Wim Francois, I think. Is yeah, Wim Francois and Kierkelis is a fellow yeah, here. Yeah. 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 Good. So along with the research that you've been conducting here and abroad and all the reading that you've been doing and kind of finally putting pieces together that maybe had been lying on the table around you, has anything really emerged that has been surprising, whether it's data points or whether it's these connections or things that you think that scholars have been glossing over but have been in front of their noses all along? Could maybe tell us a few instances of sure. surprises? Well, I think that's been one of the great benefits of being here is that, you know, just kind of had a chance to kind of sink into the research and, and uh, you, just, you, find, you find new thing after new thing after new thing. You go, oh, that's, that's just not something that people back in the States are thinking of. You know, the one I already mentioned <clears throat> regarding that, this is, a, you know, as Luther intended, an academic debate, a debate among uh, Europe's scholars at the time about what the, the Bible taught about uh, the article of, the ju of justification by faith. That's how, that's how Luther intended, you know, as he, as he wrote and as he um, lectured, he wanted to have a discussion about what he thought was a new discovery about justification by faith. And so other academics take that up and they're academics. They're not, it's not like the Pope, it's not like the Roman Curia, uh, mainly who go after him, especially after 1519. 
it's um, it's these academics who take up the the gauntlet and say, okay, we're going to have the academic debate. Just so happens that some of them are also happy to wear the mantle of inquisitor, mm -hmm. including the Loven theologians, eventually also taking part in the prosecution of uh, heterodox beliefs. But it's sort of the academic nature of the controversy, which really stands out as you look at, at, at uh, especially the beginning events of 1520. Um, <clears throat> uh, I've, I've really enjoyed reading Erasmus's correspondence. Mm -hmm. Is this something you I've, mentioned before? Yes, I'm glad you're I've mentioned this yeah. before. Um, you know, from 1519 forward. So Erasmus is here in Loven. He's, he's, he's in kind of a new position. And uh, he's going to establish this new college. He's going to get his way um, of introducing the biblical languages into the curriculum. But he makes this claim about their importance that the more conservative theologians here don't appreciate. And so he's all, uh, embroiled with uh, with uh, uh, a little fight with his fellow uh, fellow Loven uh, academics about the importance of the of the, of the classical languages and mm -hmm. the biblical languages. Um, and then and then when Luther's writings appear on the scene, uh, he becomes immediately suspect, even though he doesn't want to be associated with Luther. His colleagues on the faculty here associated with Luther, so he spends fifteen nineteen and fifteen twenty both criticizing the conservative viewpoint, especially their attack on the biblical languages and the study of them, but also trying to separate himself from Luther's sort of more extreme theological claims. And, and that is such a big part of the story of 1520, mm -hmm. Erasmus's you know, um, narrative of being caught in the middle. And he becomes so Erasmus, kind of a, he was in Luther. He was in, in Luther almost the entire time, okay, yes. And he doesn't move right. until... He senses it gets a little bit more dangerous for him uh -huh. in 1521. But for the most part, he was here traveling to Antwerp a little bit. But yeah, so Erasmus's part in the narrative is really underplayed, unless you're, you read Erasmus' biographies. Right. And you had mentioned um, in a previous conversation once again that you developed kind of a newfound respect <laughs> for Erasmus because certainly, you know, uh, it seems Protestants are suspicious of him. Yeah. But uh, you know, Roman Catholics seem equally suspicious yes, right, of him. Yeah. He's the man in the middle, yes, respected by yeah, none. Right. Um, so, to, what's what's the source of this? Sure. Uh, well, the you know, from the Protestant or Lutheran point of view, Erasmus is because he tries to separate himself from Luther, and he's always harping on Luther for his extreme rhetoric, and also has you know, Erasmus will refuse to go in the direction that Luther goes with the doctrine of election or predestination, for instance. He's uh, he just that's for Erasmus. That's not the essence of Christianity. Mm -hmm. For him, it's the life of Christ. Um, so, as a Lutheran, I always thought, well, you know, Erasmus, he's trying to distance himself from Luther, so so he won't get in trouble. But no, Erasmus is a genuine character with a genuine Christian commitment. It's just not Luther's Christian commitment, mm -hmm. but it's very well articulated. In fact, he had been articulating what his understanding of the Christian life was well before Luther started to articulate it. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't depart from it. He just keeps doubling down on it. And he's so confident that clearer heads are going to rule uh, either on the Catholic side or the, Luther, or the Lutheran side. But they don't. And he just becomes continually more marginalized. Mm. You know, finally finding a home with fellow humanists in Basel. And, he's, you know, he, he spends the rest of his life continuing to try to uh, give an apologia for his vision of what it means to be a Christian 
but it's just not what catches the imagination of either the Lutheran side or the or the Roman side. Right. I mean, certainly Erasmus is being <clears throat> presented as being um, uh, a bit of an opportunist, always looking for an opportunity. But the way you present him, you present him as is possibly uh, a more sympathetic and principled person yep. who stuck yep. to his theological. I think guns. that's for me. That's been a big surprise that he comes out. Yeah, he's looking for money, but it's not what you and I are doing as scholars. We're <laughs> funding, looking for funding, funding, funding all the time, right? So um, Continuing the long Erasmian tradition. <laughs> exactly, and certainly Erasmus does that. But um, when you read what he writes, just his, his correspondence, he, he's, he becomes, to me at least, he becomes, becomes very sympathetic. Yep. Anything else you want to add? Oh, just I'll add one more thing about surprises. Um, so... Uh, um, you can see in the de- you can see in the development of Luther's rhetoric that he is becoming more confident in in the truth of his beliefs, but also more um, more confident to be extreme in his rhetoric. And I think, especially now, you know, especially what's happening in the states, but all over the world, with you know polarizing re- uh, political rhetoric, um, you, I was surprised to see this develop actually over the course of 1520 where Luther is being very measured at the beginning of the year in his correspondence, uh, but also his public rhetoric, to as, especially after he hears the papal bull has come out against him, to how he becomes more uh, entrenched, uh, more angry, and, and I suppose more less diplomatic, and less willing to be diplomatic in his discourse. Um, so, you know, by the middle of the year, he's calling the, uh, the Pope the Antichrist, and, uh, you know, he's convinced and, and says so that... Uh, you know, the Roman Curia is, um, is possessed by the devil and, you know, God has called him and other like-minded people to reintroduce the true gospel. Mm. And the strength of the rhetoric, especially in some of those later treatises, thinking especially of, of, um, of again, uh, of the letter to the German nobility and the Babylonian captivity of the church, which he penned in August and, and October of 1520, the strength of the rhetoric in those uh, treatises would not have been possible at the beginning of the year. He mm. wasn't there yet. So um, the best word you can use, I suppose, is passion. The, the, the less kind word would be um, vitriol. Mm. He just becomes more vitriolic, privately and publicly, mm-hmm. as the year wears on. Mm-hmm. And that's a development. Maybe I kind of had an intuition about it, but you can really see it and trace it as you go through what he writes during that year. Excellent. Well, I think we'll leave the conversation there. Thanks so much for taking the time for speaking with us today. And thank you for listening to this TRN podcast. Uh, Again, don't forget to visit us on Facebook and Twitter and to uh, go to our webpage at theologyresearchnews.com. Thank you. And thank you too, Savish, for editing this.